Well, this morning we are going to wrap up our series that we've been doing this winter on doing good. Over the past few weeks, we have highlighted a number of reasons that should motivate us to do good. Uh, It's the work of the kingdom, uh, it's the command and the example of our king, Uh, it's the natural response to genuine faith, uh, and it reveals the presence of the kingdom. Uh, Today, I want to close the series by adding one more. I want to make the case this morning that doing good, uh, that good works provide a better platform for sharing the good news. Or, to put it another way, a way I've always found, found helpful, uh, it's, I think of it like this. God always intended for the message of the gospel and the ministry of the gospel to go forth together. Uh, think about it like this. In, in the gospel about Jesus, we have the only words that give life. The only message that brings reconciliation with God, the only hope for freedom from sin and victory over death, it is a great and a powerful message, a message the whole world desperately needs to hear, whether they know it or not. And when we compare that powerful message with the ministry of the gospel, when people can see both together, then I think we have something that is truly formidable. When we do the good works God has laid out in advance for us, we make the message of the gospel easier to believe and harder to dismiss. This morning, I want to share three reasons why I think that's true. First, good works create goodwill that will earn us a hearing for the gospel. Look with me, if you would, at 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 4, and then we'll jump down to verses 8 through 12. So I'll give you a second there to turn to 1 Thessalonians. So here, uh, Paul writing to the congregation in Thessalonica says this. He says, You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. Then jump down to verse 8. Paul says, Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Message and ministry together. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden on anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory." Now, to start with, I want to do maybe a little bit different kind of thing. I want us to consider what this passage tells us about Paul's missionary strategy, right? Paul shows up in a new city, Thessalonica. He wants to share the good news, the message about Jesus. Uh, And so what does he do? Uh, How does he earn a hearing with an audience that he knows is going to know very little about Judaism, let alone Jesus, And that may, in addition to that, be actively hostile to him. Uh, He says that in verse 2. He says, look, when I came, I encountered strong opposition. Well, from what he tells us here, his strategy, essentially, 
is to start by living a good life in their presence. It's basic stuff. Look what he says there. He works hard. He strives to be morally upright. He cares for the people around them. He comforts them and encourages them. And he does all this in part because he knows a very simple fact about human nature, that we are all of us more likely to listen to that kind of a person than someone who's lazy and indifferent and uncaring. Now look, I know this is not a deep insight, not a theological insight. It's just a simple point about human nature. We all are more likely to listen to and be persuaded by the people that we like and admire. And that means that when we, in obedience to Jesus, do good works, the good works God has laid out in advance for us, we are building that goodwill. And that goodwill makes those who might have otherwise ignored us or even have been hostile to us all of a sudden, they're willing to listen. It's not magic. Uh, I like that Paul even says this. It's not a trick, right? This isn't some trick. It's just human nature. It's harder to ignore and dismiss the opinions of people we like and admire. Uh, last Sunday, as I'm sure you know, was the Super Bowl. Uh, and last Sunday's Super Bowl, this year's Super Bowl, I heard this week, I haven't fact-checked it, but I heard it from one reliable source, that this Super Bowl was watched by a larger percentage of American households than any single event since the moon landing. Since the moon landing, okay? Uh, you might be surprised by that. I was a little surprised by that. After all, these are two smaller market teams, Kansas City, San Francisco. Uh, the game itself was okay. I mean, it was a great ending, mediocre first three quarters. But the reality is none of that has anything to do with why people watched it. The reason this was the most watched Super Bowl, even by percentage of households, is right there. It's Taylor and Travis. If, if you're sick to death of hearing about them, I'm sorry, but the good news is if it's made it into church, its cultural moment must almost be over, right? Isn't that <laughs> how it works? So, so just keep that in mind. Uh, but here, here's what happened. Right? Everyone like me who already watches the NFL, who watched the Super Bowl last year, we were already going to watch the Super Bowl this year. The difference this year is that Taylor Swift was going to watch the Super Bowl because her boyfriend, Travis Kelsey, is a tight end for the Kansas City Chiefs. And it turns out there are millions of young women, probably young men too, uh, who they don't care that you find football interesting. No, they don't want to hear you explain to them why it's such a great and exciting game to watch. Uh, and no, they are not going to accept your invitation to watch the Super Bowl. But if Taylor Swift is going to watch the Super Bowl, if she's going to be at the game, if she finds football interesting and exciting, well, then there might be something there, right? You know what's at work there? This very simple principle. They like and admire Taylor Swift, and so if she thinks it's worth watching the Super Bowl, well, then so do they. Now, <laughs> now listen, few of us are likely to enjoy or be saddled with the level of fame and influence that either Travis Kelsey or Taylor Swift currently possess. But here's what we can do. Like Paul, we can start with the basics. Uh, we can work hard. We can care for others. We can do our best to lead moral lives. And we can do that in our own neighborhoods, in our own schools, and in our own workplaces. So that those around us, those God has brought into our path, will see our lives, will see our good works, 
and it will earn goodwill with them. And when it earns that goodwill, it will make them more likely to listen and more likely to take the gospel seriously, more likely to believe. So that's number one. Good works create a platform for the gospel because they create goodwill. Second, good works make us credible witnesses. This is a topic I'm thinking about a lot these days. I preached a whole sermon on it in the end of December. I'm going to try not to repeat myself too much, but I do want to make the same essential point because I think it's, it's just a crucial message for the church in America today. When we do good, you know, it usually will earn us some goodwill. But, but in a less direct way, but maybe a more important one, it also makes us credible witnesses. It makes the world around us take us more seriously. Whatever they make of our beliefs, our beliefs, when we live in a way that is clearly and visibly consistent with what we say and what we preach, with what we claim to believe, it makes us more credible witnesses to the gospel. Now look, it may not convince others that we're right, but it will convince them at least that we believe what we say. And that's not a bad place to start. Look back at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. So again, you have to imagine, here's Paul, entrusted by God to bring the gospel to Thessalonica. He shows up, a stranger and a foreigner, bearing a strange but also wonderful message. And he encounters strong opposition. And not just that, according to verse 3, what we can Judge from verse 3, uh, you know, his motives, his credibility have been called into question. People are wondering if he's some sort of uh, grifter or charlatan, right? And so how does he respond um, when his credibility is called into question? D- does he list out his apostolic credentials? He could. Uh, does he explain to them that as a former Pharisee, he has a deep and detailed knowledge of the scriptures? He could. But look at what he actually does. What he actually does when he wants to demonstrate his credibility is point to his life. Again, same things we hit on earlier. He says, you want to know if I'm a charlatan, I'm a grifter? You want to know why you should trust me? You know how I lived among you. Verse 8, I cared for you. Verse 9, I shared my life. I worked hard to make sure I wasn't a burden. Verse 10, I lived a holy, righteous, and blameless life. They can trust his message, Paul says, because they can trust him. They have seen his life. They have borne witness to the way he lived in their midst. Again, they might not yet be ready to believe the message, to give their lives to Christ, but they can clearly see that Paul believes it. He's no grifter, no sophist. He may be wrong, but he's credible. He's a witness that can and must be taken seriously. Look, I like to remind us, I think it's important to remember that the message Paul proclaimed was difficult for people to believe even then. I mean, Paul says it himself uh, in his letters, right? What does he say? He says, the gospel about Jesus was a stumbling block to Jews and to Gentiles, like the people he's ministering to in Thessalonica. It was what? It was foolishness. When they first hear it, it sounds to them like foolishness. And so what does Paul say when they listen to him and they say, why why should we believe this foolishness? Well, what Paul says is, look at my life. 
Look at how I've treated you. Look at how I've lived alongside you. That, friends, is a powerful repast, no matter the audience, no matter the culture. It worked in ancient Thessalonica, and it will work here too. It does work here. I was talking just a couple weeks ago to a couple in our, own, in our church here, and it was one of these conversations where I, I interrupted like halfway through the story to say, uh, can I have permission right now to use this in a sermon at some point? Uh, and they said, sure, that's, that's fine. Uh, they were talking to me about uh, this incredible story about them and their financial advisor. Uh, they'd had the same financial advisor for pretty much their whole adult life. Uh, they had found them early in their careers and just stuck with them for 30, 40 years. Um, and, you know, a couple of years ago, a few years ago, they were leaving their meeting with their advisor. And on the way out, their advisor said, oh, hey, hey. I keep forgetting, I, I meant to tell you guys, have I told you guys that, that my relationship with you has just totally changed my life? And they said, well, no, you, you haven't told us this. And he went on to tell them, he said, well, you know, back in the early days when, we, when you started meeting with me, you know, I, I was a nominal Catholic. You know, I, I grew up Catholic, but I never had anything I would call or you certainly would have called a personal relationship with God. Uh, and you know, Life went on, I was successful professionally, but, but I always felt like there had to be more to life than this. And every time I would meet with you guys, I'd listen to you talk about your church, listen to you talk about your ministry to young adults, talk about uh, your missions trips to the Dominican Republic, and I could just see in you that you had the, the purpose and significance that I wanted so badly. And so one year, after that meeting with you guys, I thought, you know what? I'm just going to do it. So I looked around. I, I found Wooddale Church pretty close to where I live. I just started going to Wooddale. And after a couple weeks there, I gave my life to Jesus. And after a little while longer, uh, I, I went to the Wooddale staff and I said, hey, uh, the, the people that, that influenced me to come here, they, they've always said that their work with young adults was, was deeply meaningful. I would like to get involved with the young adult ministry. And they said, great. And he got plugged in, started serving the young adult ministry there. And he said, I just thought you should know that, that now I have that, that meaning and significance that I always wanted. And, and it's, it's largely because of you, because of the way that you lived your life. It is, I would say, because they saw in this couple uh, the, the ministry of the gospel and the message of the gospel together. Right? You know... I love this story for like five different reasons. I'm going to try and confine myself to a few. Uh, you know, first, it's a great example of the ministry and the message together. They heard this couple talk about their faith. He heard them, but he also saw that they lived it out. Um, I also love it because, you know, if I think just in the abstract about sharing your faith with your financial advisor, I could see how that could go two very different ways, right? I mean, they probably know enough about you. They see how you're actually managing your money so that that is either going to like completely discredit you, or, as in this case, it's going to make you very credible. They're going to see over and over and over, I mean, across years and decades, that you put your money where your mouth is. And that's what happened here, and that made a big difference. Uh, or, I'll, I'll say a third thing. Um, because you're a credible witness, because they get to see that, it, makes, it means that over time, the message that you proclaim, the message you share becomes easier and easier to believe. 
Final note, this isn't really related to the sermon. This is free bonus content, so I'll just throw this in. But I think it's worth identifying for a moment, right? And it's this. I think one of the really interesting things about this is that this guy made all the big decisions without talking to this couple at all in real time, right? They only found out about it after the fact. He started going to church, found a church all on his own, gave his life to Christ without talking to them, got involved in ministry without talking to them. Uh, It's only years later they found out that God had been working the whole time across all these years using what they shared, using the way they lived their life. You know, I I don't know if this is just me, uh, might be some of you also, but, you know, I have this tendency to feel like if I don't see the fruit of my labor, I just, I assume nothing has come of it, right? And sure, okay, every once in a while you have stories like this, but those those are surely the exception to the rule, Right? Well, I don't know, the longer I live, the longer I'm in ministry, the more I'm convinced that we have that the wrong way around, that we only see a small part of what God does with our lives and our testimonies. Most of what, God's always at work, and most of what he does, we probably never see. That, that I think, is a cool part, too. You know, as you're doing good, as you're sharing the message, just keep in mind, you may never see what God does with that, but it doesn't mean he's not doing anything. All right. That's your free content, bonus content. So, all right, we do good works because good works earn us goodwill. Uh, That earns us a hearing for the gospel. Number two, they also make us credible witnesses to the gospel. Third and finally, good works make the message of the gospel harder to dismiss in a doubting and hurting world. Uh, Toward the end of his life, John the Baptist John, who had been a fiery prophet, who who had called just boldly, courageously, fearlessly, called Israel to repentance in preparation for the coming Messiah, John had been thrown in prison, arrested by Herod, and Herod hated him because in the time-honored tradition uh, tradition of true prophets, uh, John had called him to repentance too, called him out. And Herod, like so many people with power, found it easier to throw him in prison than to actually repent. And so now John's sitting there, he's in prison, he knows he's unlikely to ever be released, and he's understandably a little bit discouraged. And he asks one of his disciples to take a message to Jesus and to ask Jesus, are you the one we've been waiting for, or is there still another yet to come? And in Matthew 11, 4 through 6, Jesus responds to this messenger from John. Jesus replied, go back, and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Ministry of the gospel, message of the gospel. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. So here's John, he's in a moment of discouragement, he knows probably that his own death is not far off, and he asks Jesus, are you really the Messiah? Is the kingdom of God really here? And Jesus does an interesting thing. He doesn't list his credentials, he doesn't explain to John how he has personally fulfilled any number of prophecies, he doesn't actually mention himself at all. Rather, He just directs John's disciple to have a look around. The blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear. 
When John begins to doubt the message of the kingdom, Jesus encourages him by directing his eyes toward the works of the kingdom. Because they are the evidence of the presence of God's rule. The good works of the kingdom make the message of the kingdom credible. You see, I think this is the truth. I think in a fallen world, acts of kindness, acts of mercy and compassion, they stand out. More than that, I would, I would say it like this. Over time, those things cry out for an explanation. Well, here's what I mean. We may not like unselfishness, you know, especially, or we may not like selfishness, especially in other people, but we understand it, right? Because it comes naturally to all of us. When we see someone acting selfishly, we don't need, we don't need that to be explained to us. We understand exactly what's going on there. Selfishness requires no explanation. But unselfishness demands an explanation, Grace, kindness, goodness uh, that are clearly undeserved, generosity that, that obviously cannot be repaid, those stand out. Those things cry out to be explained. And it just so happens, brothers and sisters, that we have the explanation. Jesus is God's Messiah, and in him, God's rule has broken into our fallen world. I would suggest to you this morning that those acts become stubborn witnesses to the presence and the reality of God's rule. They testify, maybe quietly, but persistently, that God is present and working in our world. Uh, Last year, uh, a church in Georgia called Cross Church gave $15,000 to an organization called RIP Medical Debt. Uh, if you're not familiar with them, they are a nonprofit, and what they do is they buy medical debt on the debt market, the way a collection agency might do. So uh, it's, it's a weird, whole weird world. Uh, you don't really need to understand it, but essentially what they do is they buy this debt from the other holders at a much reduced rate, often pennies on the dollar, And if you're a collection agency, what you do then is you take that and you try and collect as much money as possible from the people who owe it. And the difference between what you collect and what you paid for it, that's your profit. Well, RIP medical debt goes into the same markets and it buys the same debt. uh, But instead of collecting it, what it does is it looks for charitable donors who will just pay pay the market rate, pay what they paid for it, and just erase it. So... This church, following in the footsteps of other churches, Cross Church, they called them up. They said, hey, we've raised $15,000, and what we would like to do as a church is we would like you to try, up, try and buy up as much of the outstanding medical debt from our community as you can with this money. So they did. They went out there, and they were able to purchase $2.5 million in unpaid medical debt. And if it's being sold in this way, it's because people are struggling to pay it, they're late to pay it. So they bought, they were able to buy all this debt. And then the church sent letters to all the people who owed this money. And they said, we're writing this letter to inform you that Cross Church is now the holder of your medical debt. And we are delighted to tell you that in the name of Jesus, your debt has been paid in full. 
You can maybe imagine how it might feel to get one of those letters, especially if you are stressing, you're not sleeping, and you're worried you're going to lose your house, you just have no idea what you're going to do about this, and out of nowhere, you get a letter that tells you, well, Jesus paid your debt. You know, I don't know, maybe no one read that letter and gave their life to Christ, I don't know. Maybe it didn't increase church attendance at all at Cross Church. I have no idea, to be honest. But this I know for certain. If you got one of those letters, if your debt was forgiven in the name of Jesus, from that day forward, it was going to be much, much harder to dismiss the next person who walked into your life and told you that Jesus loved you. You know, maybe you thought that was funny a week ago. Maybe a month ago, that idea crossed your mind as ridiculous. But after Jesus shows up and pays a debt you could not pay, that's going to be a lot harder to dismiss. If you got one of those letters, it was going to get much, much harder for you to laugh at the idea that God's kingdom had broken into our world. Again, maybe a week ago, you would have laughed at the person who told you that. Maybe you thought that was a myth or a fantasy. But I mean, what are you going to say now? God showed up and he paid your medical debt. Maybe, just maybe, Jesus had paid another debt for you too. Good works earn us goodwill. They make us personally credible as witnesses to the gospel. And together, when you start adding these things up, They make the gospel message stubbornly difficult to dismiss and easier to believe. All right, I want want to close by doing something strange or a little different this morning. I I want to give a conclusion. It's not just to my sermon. So if you're wondering, what does this have to do with the sermon? Not that much. Uh, I want to conclude the whole series Um, I'm doing this because in my own personal reading this week, I came across a a passage that I think provides a piece to this puzzle that we haven't touched on yet in our series. Um, And I think it's this. Uh, You know, we've we've listed these other things, right? Uh, It's the work of the kingdom. You know, doing good, it's the natural response to genuine faith. It testifies to the presence of the kingdom. It gives us a platform for the gospel. Well, here's one more piece that I think we'd do well to cover, and it's this. Doing good is what Jesus has called us to do, and he could return at any moment. At any moment. So now is the time for obedience. Not tomorrow, not next week, but now. Because if we wait to obey, if we wait to forgive, if we wait to show mercy, we may never get to do it. Just listen if you would. You, don't need, you can follow along if you want, or you can just listen as I read from Matthew chapter four, 24, verses 45 to 51. This is Jesus talking. He says this, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of all the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly I tell you, He will put that servant in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And he then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. 
The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So here's your interpretation. We, friends, the church, we are the servants. We are the body of Christ. We are his physical presence during his physical absence. And Jesus is the master. He is the risen Lord. He has charged us to do good, to show mercy, to be generous, to have compassion, to forgive not seven times, but 70 times seven, to love even our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us. And here, right here in this teaching, he has warned us as clearly as any of us could hope for not to put off doing those things. He has warned us also, for the record, he might be away a long time. He's been away a long time. But he tells us that we would be foolish indeed to use that as an excuse to disobey or even to delay obedience because one day he will return. And when he comes, he expects to find us about his work. This is maybe a little odd, but think of it the other way around. What if we knew for a fact that he was going to return at any moment, you know, say Tuesday morning? How then would we live? I bet we would want him to catch us doing good. You know, we would go out, we would find that person that we need to be reconciled with, and we would make peace. We would find a way to forgive them because we do not want our Lord and Savior to come back and find us harboring anger and bitterness in our heart. I bet we would be generous with the people around us. After all, we can't take it with us, and we're not going to need it. We would want him to find us doing good. Well, here's the deal, friends. He might come back Tuesday, or at any moment, he might come back next Tuesday. The only way, according to Jesus... The only way we can be ready is to start doing good now and to keep doing it until the Lord returns or we go to be with him in glory. That's it. Now, I want to be clear. I say this not to shame or guilt anyone. That's the wrong motivation. I hope it encourages you. I hope it fills you with the urgency of joy. You know how when you're genuinely overjoyed with something, you're just you feel like you'll burst with that energy, right? You gotta tell people, you gotta do things. I hope it fills you with the urgency of joy. Jesus will return in glory at any moment, at a day, an hour, none of us expect. And when he comes, I don't know about you, I don't wanna be caught doing nothing. I don't want to explain to my Savior, no, really, Jesus, I was planning to forgive next week. It just, you know, you came back earlier than I expected. I don't want to explain that I was going to be generous after the next raise. When Jesus returns, I want him to find us, to find first free, neck deep in the work of the kingdom. I want, us to, I want him to catch us in the act of showing mercy. I want, us to, I want him to catch us in the act of being generous. When Jesus returns, I want him to find first free, busy doing good. Busy doing his work. 
Will you bow with me? We pray. Heavenly Father, we do praise you this morning. You are the risen and victorious Lord. In you, the kingdom of God, the rule of God has broken into our fallen and sinful world and we can see evidence of that all around us if we only have eyes to see. God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and I pray, Lord, that as we see it, it would fill us with the urgency of joy so that we might gladly join in the work of the kingdom. I pray, Father, that that you might give us your eyes for the people of this world, that we might go forth with the message and the ministry of the gospel. And I pray, Lord, that by what we do, by how we live, that we might make ourselves credible witnesses and that we might testify, that our actions might testify to your presence in our world today. In your name we pray, amen.